Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's talk, What Submission Is, from our audio collection titled Marriage as Manifest Glory, Volume 5, Learning to Dance. If you enjoyed this talk and would like to hear the rest of the volume, those talks include things like what headship is not, what headship is, what submission is, men are stupid, women are stupid, and reciprocity. If those talks interest you, head to the app store of your choice and download the Canon Press app. The Canon app is just another way for you to get the content that we have. Instead of purchasing these files from our website, you can download the Canon app, subscribe, and have them at your fingertips. We're really excited about what this app can do and what it'll mean for how we do content in the future. Go download the app, subscribe, and all aboard the Canon Press pirate ship. Last week, we looked at what submission is not, and the weeks before, we were considering what headship is not, what headship actually is. We considered last week what submission is not, and I want to consider this week what submission is. What is a positive statement of this? We've been careful to avoid distortions of this teaching because in our generation, it is both embraced and rejected wrongly. In our generation, it is embraced wrongly. There are people who are all about submission and they talk about it all the time. They are not embarrassed by the verses in the Bible that talk about submission, but they're not embarrassed by them because they twist them, they distort them, they misapply them. And, and so they embrace what they say the, teacher, the scripture teaches, but they embrace it wrongly. And there are others who have that same misunderstanding and reject the misunderstanding. So there are people who reject it wrongly, there are people who embrace it wrongly. And so we wanted to be careful to say, to reject all errors connected to this subject because it is a very important subject. But we have to, we, we can't just be against things, we have to state positively what we believe. What submission is. In this text, although this is not a definition in the modern dictionary sense, it is a definition here. In this passage, Paul defines a woman. Paul defines a woman. He describes a woman defining her. And notice what we learn. The woman is the glory of the man. The woman is the glory of the man. The Apostle Paul is choosing his language very carefully here. Notice that he says that man is the image and glory of God, but he does not say that the woman is the image and glory of man. He doesn't just repeat it. This is because the woman and the man together are the image of God. You recall in Genesis, it says, Genesis 1:27. so God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. The Bible is explicit that man and woman together constitute the image of God. Man and woman together bear the image of God. So Paul does not say that man is the image and glory of God and that woman, uh, one tear down, is the image and glory of man. He's saying something different. Man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. He leaves out image. The, the woman is not the image of man because the woman, the woman bears the image of God, just as the men do. Men and women together bear the image of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. It would be a grievous error to hint or otherwise indicate that, that women were not fashioned in the image of God uh, in just the same way that the men are. At the same time, the Bible teaches and Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians just a few pages later, when he's talking about the resurrection, he says that star differs from star in glory. Uh, this doctrine of glory is a very um, interesting Pauline doctrine. In 1 Corinthians 15, 40 and 41, star differs from star in glory. And he argues that the glory of the sun and the glory of the moon are not the same. They are both glorious, but they're not the same. They're not identical. Glory ascends and glory descends. And that is its glory. 
This is important for us to, to grasp. This is probably, the, I would just say that an understanding of the heart of this is at the heart of the gospel. If we don't understand that this is God's way, this is what God is like, we don't understand what he did in the cross. God is not a monolithic, unitary being exercising raw power on the world. To use, I, I think I referred last week to a phrase from Luther where God uses frequently left-handed power. God does not just simply coerce and decree and declare. There are times when he does. He will do this in the last judgment. He did it with Noah's flood. There are times when he simply exercises raw, right-handed power. When he says, let there be light, there was light. God exercises his sovereignty that way. But in the course of human history, God manifests a more profound glory and reveals more of what he is like in things like Jesus Christ dying on the cross. That also is glory. But it's a left-handed glory. It's a glory that, that we would not have guessed. We would not have anticipated it. So glory ascends and descends. The, the God of glory stoops. The God of glory bends. The God of glory is humble. God is humble. He humbles himself. When we look at Jesus, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus humbled himself. This means that ultimate wisdom, ultimate everlasting love, ultimate everlasting power, ultimate goodness is humble. The ultimate power in the universe is humble. But if you just simply have a raw dynamo up in the sky, a, a reservoir of power, that is utilized in the way that sinful beings would utilize it if they had that much power, the last thing in the world we would anticipate, the last thing we would think of, uh, the last word we would think of using to describe such a being would be humble. But God exhibits humility. That is his glory. And the more he humbles himself, the more we see that he's exalted. When Jesus humbled himself and took the form of a servant, and he suffered to the point of death, Paul tells us, uh, in, in Philippians chapter 2, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. The name that is above every name is a humble name. And therefore, it is a glorious name. And this is a left-handed way of getting there. This is not what we would anticipate. So glory ascends, but glory also descends. And that is its glory to do so. And we see in the gospel how glory increases as it stoops. Glory increases as it descends. Glory bows and glory curtsies. Glory shines and glory reflects. Glory empties and glory fills. Glory ascends in the Shekinah column of glory, and glory descended into a virgin's womb. Glory is anything but domesticated and predictable. Glory is not this monochrome thing. It's not a static thing. Glory is not contained that way. We cannot box glory up. We cannot contain glory in that way. And consequently, all Unitarian models of headship and submission are bankrupt of glory. They miss the element of glory. They can't have glory. They can have power, they can have might, they can have um, raw dynamism for a time, but then they lose even that. They don't understand what the Bible talks about when the Bible is describing the weight of glory. When we were talking about what submission is not last week, one of the things we considered was uh, one of the illustrations I used was that of a dance. The relation of authority in a biblical sense, in a Trinitarian sense, the relationship of authority and submission is to be compared to a dance and not compared to a fight or not compared to a competition, a foot race. It is not a competition. Authority and submission are present in a dance and authority and submission are present in a heavyweight prize fight. Right? You've got a, one model of authority and submission. May the best man win, come out fighting, and one guy is to knock the other guy down. You have authority and submission after a fashion. You have authority and submission. That's one model. That's one way of thinking about it. But you also have in a waltz with uh, a man and a woman dancing together, you also have leadership and submission. You have headship, authority, and submission. But the model is completely different. It's not a competition. You don't keep score. 
No gentleman bows to a lady after a dance and says, beat you. Suppose his name was, we'll use terms from Proverbs, his name is Joe Simple, and her name is Susie Wisdom, right? For some reason, Joe Simple prevailed upon Susie Wisdom to dance with him, because she owed somebody big time, probably, and she, and so she danced with him, and after, after the dance was over, and they're doing, thank you very much, thank you, and he leans over and says, I won, beat you. Because her name is Susie Wisdom, her eyebrows go up, but only slightly because she's polite. And she looks at him and says, you were keeping score? And he says, yes, I was keeping score. You, stepped, you, you had this many steps, and I had 28 more steps than that. And she said, that explains a lot of things. Right? <laughs> this is not a comp... It's a, a dance is not a competition. And if... if a man enters into this relationship assuming that it's a competition, assuming that it's the kind of thing that he can even win, that 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 even fits, that even describes it. If he assumes that, then what he's going to turn it into is, as Susie Wisdom uh, leans over to him and says, well, I have a riddle for you. The more you win that way, the more you lose. The more you win that way, the more you lose. If you turn it into a competition, you're turning it into a competition that there that you cannot win, right? You think you win, but you don't win because this is a dance. It's not a fight, it's not a foot race, it's not a competition. And although, using this as a model, although the man leads in dancing, the result of his leading is to showcase his lady. When a man knows what he's doing when he's dancing with a woman, he dances in such a way, he leads in such a way as to showcase her. This is because he is dancing with his glory. And the last thing in the world he should want to do is upstage his glory. What kind of sense does that make? If you're in a fist fight, if you're fighting for the heavyweight championship of the world, you know what your task is. You, you want to upstage the other guy. You want to knock the other guy down. You want to prevail. That's one model. But that model does not apply at all, period, end, to marriage. It doesn't apply. It makes no sense for a man to say, stop looking at my glory, look at me. He is, this is not, it's not just sinful, it's incoherent. It's not just sinful, it's folly. Stop looking at my glory, the man says, look at me instead. We've seen that scripture teaches women in multiple places that they are to be in submission to their own husbands. The Bible teaches that women are to be submissive to their own husbands, and the Bible says this over and over again. As forgiven sinners, they are being taught to reassume the position that their mother Eve forfeited through being deceived and which their father Adam lost for them through his rebellion against the word of God. Their mother Eve was deceived and she stumbled. And because she stumbled, Christian women are warned in the New Testament not to stumble in the same way. The woman was deceived. You ladies, don't be deceived. Adam knew what he was doing. Adam rebelled straight up. And this is the besetting sin of men. Women get tangled up. Men revolt. And so consequently, you have to guard against that. Men are told to guard against the sin that Adam fell into. Women are told to guard against the sin that Eve fell into. So Adam lost, through his rebellion against God, a certain natural order to things that was just built in. And the woman, through being deceived, lost the same thing. Before the fall, certain motions, certain motions between husband and wife were just natural, normal, right, and effortless. After the crash, which would be another name for the fall, after the crash, all of us who are redeemed in Christ are going through intensive, quote-unquote, physical therapy in order to relearn some of those fundamental motions. Just like the victim of an automobile accident who has to learn how to use a spoon again. They've been using a spoon for 40 years, using a spoon for 50 years, and now they have to take the spoon and they have to have a therapist right there to put it in their hand and show them how to hold it and retrain the arm to do what, was, what used to be the most natural thing in the world. They never had to think about it. Indeed, before, if they thought about what they were doing, they wouldn't be able to do it. Now, in order to do it, they have to think about it and concentrate on it. 
So that's what a physical therapist does, tries to retrain your muscles, retrain your arm, retrain you to do what you could do effortlessly before. So just like a victim of that kind of automobile accident, men have to learn, again, how to take responsibility, which we began running from when Adam said, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. We began evading responsibility, fleeing responsibility, when Adam started blaming others. Earlier than that, when Adam capitulated and, and abdicated and did not lead, did not protect the garden, did not protect his wife, did not protect the way he ought to have protected. Men have to relearn how to do that. And in the same way, women have to learn how to submit to their own husbands. If there were no sin, if there were no fall, if your spouse were perfect, and if you were perfect, this would be easy. This would be as effortless as just having dinner with your spoon. But this, the simplest of motions, the simplest of motions now has to be relearned. And this is why the Bible tells us over and over again to do this. And it can be exasperating for us to have to be told the same thing by the therapist 10 times in one day. It's exasperating, but it's worth it. There's a reason for it. The therapist is, uh, many patients who have had to go through intensive physical therapy have come to believe, perhaps, uh, perhaps permanently in bitterness, sometimes temporarily in moments of exasperation, they come to believe that the therapist is simply there to annoy them. No, don't do that. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And you finally cry out in despair. What's with all this legalism? Why the legalism? And the answer is simple. I'm being legalistic about how you hold the spoon and how you bring the food to your mouth because you don't know how to do it. If you could do it, I wouldn't be here. If you could do it, you wouldn't be here. If we knew how to exercise authority, take responsibility in a godly and Trinitarian way, and if, and if Christian wives knew how to respond in a submissive Trinitarian way, uh, we wouldn't have to spend all this time on this subject. But we don't know how to do it. We keep reverting to, to simplistic models, competitive models, Unitarian models to figure out what this authority and headship is supposed to look like. But don't become so obsessed with the therapy, with the details of the therapy, that you forget the point. The point is always restoration. The point is to get back to where it was. Now submission, rightly understood, is this motion of feminine response to a masculine husband. Submission, rightly understood, is this natural motion of a feminine woman to a masculine man. And what is the wife to her husband? All right, this, we're, this motion of exercising authority, taking responsibility, and responding to that initiative, responding in humility, exercising authority in humility, responding in humility, that is how God built us to function. That's the way it was before the fall. And, when, and, and, and what did we learn in the text? What is the woman to her husband? What is she to him? The Bible says she is his glory. She is his glory. And so, learning how to respond to him is growing up into glory. If a woman is her husband's glory, and, we, and, and he is her head, as we've learned, his obedience can make him a good head or a bad head. She can be a poor reflection of glory or a good reflection of glory. But she is his glory, and he is her head regardless. If the man is growing up into what God has called him to be, and the woman is growing up into what God has called her to be, she is growing up into glory. She is not growing down into a position of oppression. She is not growing into a doormat. She is not growing into something inglorious. The woman is the man's glory. She was created to be the man's glory, and created to be the man's glory means that when she's responding rightly, learning how to respond rightly, she's growing up into this glory. So, if a woman is a man's glory, learning to respond as a woman to your husband is learning to be glorious. A woman who is learning to respond submissively, biblically defined, defined by Trinitarian Christians, not defined by uh, fundamentalist Muslims, not defined by Unitarians, not defined by statists, but defined by Trinitarian Christians, a woman who learns to submit is becoming glorious. She's growing up into glory. She's increasing in glory. And we say, 
That makes no sense at all. What do you, how, can, how can down be up? How can humbling yourself be a way of promotion? Well, realize what you're doing when you revolt against this. When, when we say that a woman who learns to submit in a godly, uh, trinitarian, biblical way, and you say, That's, that makes no sense at all. That is just plain crazy. That's just plain backwards. You need to rec- you need to think what you just thought or said, and then come to grips with what the Bible says over and over and over again. This is what Jesus, we may put this at the very center of Jesus' ethic. And Jesus' ethic is not a moral code. It's not a ladder that you use to climb up into heaven to attain to God. Rather, Jesus' ethic is a description of what God is like, what God is like already, and what we are becoming like to the extent that we have come into union with him. So consequently, if you say, this makes no sense, I don't see how a woman learning submission will increase her glory. I don't see how she can decrease and therefore increase. We see it all the time. John the Baptist says he must increase and I must decrease. And what happens? We think more of John the Baptist for saying that. Jesus humbled himself and therefore God exalted him. James says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. The first will be last and the last will be first. Do you want to have authority? Then you must become a servant of all. This is God's way. And this is God's way, not because he arbitrarily cooked it up. This is God's way because this is what it's like inside the Trinity. This is what God is like. This is what he was like before the world was made. This is the way God is. And when a man is given the privilege of loving a woman, and a woman is given the privilege of respecting and honoring a man, and both of them set themselves to grow into this understanding. They both grow into glory, but they grow into different kinds of glory. And the husband learns to sacrifice and give, and he leads, and he bestows, and the more he leads and bestows and sacrifices, the better she looks, and the better she looks, the better he looks. The better he leads in the dance, the more she is showcased, and the more she is showcased, he becomes invisible in the process, and yet everybody acknowledges that he is the one who has set that pattern. So in this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, how are we to understand this glory? Before we look at the details of it, we have to understand that it is, in fact, glory. It is not um, a consolation prize. It's not second place. Women don't come in the, great, um, in, in the great day of judgment. Women do not come in and win the bronze or win the silver with the men getting the gold. That's not, that's not how this works. Again, it's not a competition. So there are three aspects of this glory that Paul gives us. In the passage that follows our text, the Apostle Paul gives us three characteristics of women that help us to understand what this glory involves. The first of the three is that woman is from the man, verse 8. She is his glory because God created Eve from Adam's side, Genesis 2:11. She is from the man. The second is that she was created for the man, verse 9. This depends on Genesis 2:18, where God created a helper for man that was suitable for him. And third, woman is the glory of man because every man with a wife is a man with a mother. Verses 11 and 12. So glory, when Paul, Paul says the woman is the glory of the man, when Paul describes the woman as being the glory of the man, he then goes on and talks about these things. And if we, if we glided over his statement that the woman is the glory of the man, we might come to the subsequent verses, the woman is from the man, the woman is for the man, and the woman is the mother of man as being some sort, some sort of uh, Pauline jab at the woman, as though Paul thinks this is a foot race or a fist fight, or Paul thinks that this is a competition. But it's not. And it's not in Paul's mind. So glory, and, and it's genuine glory, involves being from the man, involves being for the man, and it involves being the mother of men. Let's consider these in their turn. In Scripture, from the man first. In Scripture, origins are always important. Origins are always important. The fact that woman was after the man and from the man is the reason why today we are not to have women who are elders or pastors, as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2.13. The origin of woman thousands of years ago, is not some tidbit of ancient 
history. It's not a remnant from some long lost civilization. It's not an irrelevant historical detail. It is a design feature with continuing relevance. It's a design feature with continuing relevance. The God who created the human race in that way continues his work today in how he has fashioned every man and every woman here. Every man here in some sense models your father Adam. Every woman here in some sense models Eve. Every boy here has to grow up into someone who will model Adam righteously, not in his rebellion. And every girl here is, has to grow up into a woman who is called by God to model um, this appropriate biblical response to a man. And this issue of origins, this issue of derivation is important. The God who was there then and the God who was inspiring Paul 2,000 years ago to write these words is the God who is present here with us today. And so consequently, this means that a woman who embraces her derivative glory in this is embracing wisdom. In other words, you can look at Paul's comment in 1 Corinthians 15 and say the sun has one kind of glory and the moon has another kind of glory. But if the moon said the derivative glory, reflecting glory is not sufficient for me, the, the moon is genuinely glorious. But a first-rate moon is a second-rate sun. A first-rate moon is a second-rate sun. And why would a first-rate woman want to be a second-rate man? It doesn't make any sense. God has not made us this way. And so consequently, we must embrace what God has done. And when we embrace what God has done, this does not result, us, result in us skulking off into a corner where, where we may uh, enjoy the, the uh, ridicule of the universe because uh, everybody knows that biblical conservative Christianity despises women. No, far from it. It's exactly the opposite. So, a woman who embraces her derivative glory is embracing her glory. She, know, she knows what she is to be modeling, and origins are important. The fact that we are living in an egalitarian era, a time in which many ostensibly evangelical churches are struggling with this issue that Paul addresses very plainly in 1 Timothy 2.13. He says, women are not to teach or have authority over man. In the church, you may not have women who are elders. You may not have women who are pastors. You may not. Uh, you may not, Paul says. It's that, and, and when he appeals to the reason why, when someone presses him, why, he doesn't say, well, the Greco-Roman milieu says that we, you know, we'd get in trouble with the, the, the prevailing sentiments if we did that. When Paul is pressed on this point, he invariably goes back to creation. He goes back to the point of origin. He says, let's go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God did this. And in the beginning, God created man. And in the beginning, and, and the fact that God created man first is significant for Paul. Because God created man first, women today may not be pastors or elders. And he says in Corinthians, because not only was man created first, but woman was created in a derivative way from the man, that has continuing significance. But this is not to be used as an excuse to browbeat the woman, which actually, actually Paul anticipates. Knowing, knowing men, knowing the male, uh, they like to turn everything into a competition. Everything has to be something that they're winning. I remember one time many years ago talking to a, a, a young husband who was talking to me about how the kids responded when he disciplined them versus how they responded when his wife tried to discipline them. And it was very evident from how he told me that he was keeping score. He was saying, I am better at disciplining the kids than she is. I'm winning the competition. Men tend to turn everything into a competition. And Paul anticipates that, and that's our third point, every, every man is born of a woman, but let's just run ahead and touch on one element of that. If a man begins putting on airs to the woman and says, and he says, well, see, origins are important, I heard it in the sermon, origins are important, the man was created first and then the woman, and furthermore, not only was the man created first, but the woman was created from the man, and that means that the man outranks the woman because she was created from the man. All right, let's, let, let's uh, give you that for the sake of the argument. What was the man made out of? Dirt. 
And we see you finally found your level. You, we, finally, we finally found your boss. If you're going to think that way, if you're going to think that way, I'm going to put on airs because she was derived from me. And I'm going to, if I see it as anything other than glory, right? if I see it as anything other than glory, I'm distorting it. God stoops and he can create a man out of dirt. He can fashion Adam out of clay and breathe the, breathe the breath of life into him and put his own image on dirt. That's the God who stoops. But if we said, oh, it's not a question of glory, it's just a question of or raw origin. Well, obviously you get to outrank um, the woman that way, but the, your backyard outranks you. <laughs> so the first thing is from the man. The second aspect of glory is the woman is created for the man. Two basic questions that confront everyone who thinks about their life are these. Where did I come from, and where am I going? Where did I come from, and where am I going? The fact that the woman is from the man answers the first question. Where did I come from? I came from the man. Where am I going? The fact that she was created for the man answers the second. Notice, not that I have to tell you to notice, you've probably already noticed, that this kind of organic interdependency is mortally offensive to the autonomous, individualistic, and atomized spirit of the age. They say that you are squelching women if you do this. You're squelching men, you're hurting everybody. If you don't, if you don't let everybody be an atomistic, separated, distinct individual, independent from every, everyone else. And this gets to ludicrous levels where in some places they're talking about letting little children divorce their parents because each child is an autonomous individual and they can make their own choices. And what we want to do is we want to atomize everyone, disconnect everyone from one another. As an aside, let me just say something about this process of atomization. There's a vast difference between communities, societies, churches, towns, which are molecular, and those which are atomistic. If you take everybody here and you sever all the bonds, all the covenant bonds that connect you to others, from your parents, from your spouse, from your wife, from your children, from your nieces and your nephews, and from all your brothers and sisters, if you sever all those bonds, then what we have here is a big collection of atomized BBs. And you can put all the BBs in one sack, a big sack, and it has all the structural rigidity of a beanbag chair. You push here, push there, you can push it any way you want to, because these atoms are disconnected from one another, which means that another more powerful entity can come in, and in our day, that entity is the state, right? The state comes in and can manipulate these atomized individuals because they are all disconnected from one another. But when we are connected to one another, when we are connected, husband to wife, parents to children, uh, children to ext uh, extended family, the families you marry into, the, the cousins and the sisters and the aunts and all this sort of thing. And, and as the way the engagements and marriages are going in our congregation, it has become apparent to us that we're soon going to have to employ a church genealogist to keep uh, track of who's related to who, who's connected to who, and a few generations down, no, no, you can't marry that person. Um, <laughs> So there are, pit, there are pitfalls, there are things we have to avoid, but the thing that, the thing that we need to understand is this is molecular. When you, have, when you have all these connections to husband to wife, parents to children, um, grown children to their parents, and extended families, these are molecular connections that makes towns, villages, communities, churches strong. This is what makes us, we can, um, we stick together. We know, we know what our fundamental allegiances are. We know where our loyalties are. And so we can, we, we can understand the world around us in a reasonable hierarchy. It's not just atomized individuals and the nation. It's not just atomized individuals and the overweening state. It's families, extended families, churches, communities, towns, and so on. And all of these are tied together by means of covenant. But this depends upon us giving ourselves away, being for 
the man. And Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 11 that the woman is for the man in a way that the man is not for the woman. Now, obviously, Christ gives himself for the woman. He sacrifices himself for the woman. In, in a fund, and husbands are told to love their wives in that way. They are to love their wives and give themselves for the woman in the same way that Christ gave himself for the church. But man was created, Adam was created to tend the garden, and the woman was created to tend the gardener. Right, so you have someone tending the garden and you have someone tending the gardener. Now obviously Adam has to protect the one given to tend him. If he doesn't protect the one who's given to tend him, if he doesn't protect her from the serpent, what happens is he's going to be uh, prevented from tending the garden. The, the ground is cursed, all these things happen because Adam did not give himself for his wife the way he ought to have done. But God created man for his task, for his vocation in the world, and God created the woman to tend him, to help him. I will make a helper suitable to him, it says. So, this whole thing is mortally offensive to our egalitarian age. And perhaps, depending on the state, might even be illegal from uh, place to place to say these sorts of things. Some sort of hate crime. What should a woman's orientation be? Her orientation should be toward her husband. She was created to be his helper. But we are making a, a point far beyond this. When a woman is oriented in this way, she is her husband's glory and not her husband's drudge. When you understand this rightly, when you understand that the woman is derived from the man, she's from the man, that's her glory, and you realize that the woman is created for the man, that's her glory, if you interpret it as she's his doormat, she's his servant, she, she's got to be at his beck and call, and if he, he comes in the door blustering and demanding things, it's very clear that he doesn't understand this at all. And if the woman thinks, well, this, this makes me subordinated in some sort of slavish way, she doesn't understand it either. Again, this is a dance, not a competition. So the woman is not to become her husband's drudge. She is created for the man, but she is not created for the man in such a way that demeans her. An illustration I've used to point this out a number of times, and you may have heard this before, but it's, I think it's a, a helpful illustration. Uh, look at books that are written by, um, uh, books written by a man for a male audience and compare them to a book written by a woman for a female audience. And it can be, it can be um, not very good literature, be something you bought off the rack at Safeway. It can be great literature. It doesn't matter. It can be Homer's Odyssey and it can be uh, Austin's Pride and Prejudice. In these books, the, the book written by a man for a male audience, what's the book about? What's the plot about? It's almost always about the battle, the mission, accomplishing whatever it is, winning the war, winning the battle. If it's a Western, getting the gold or the cattle back or getting the water rights or accomplishing the goal. Men are task-oriented. They want to find the gold. They want to find the water. They want to find the cows, all right? <laughs> Don't bother me. I just, I need to find the cows. Um, and many times men are like a dog pushing a rock. They have one thing on their minds. <laughs> and they don't want to be interrupted. Because they can only handle one thing at a time. And then after they're done with that, they can go on to the next thing. Men are task-oriented. And so the plot, these books written by men for, for men, are books that are all about the mission. Books by men for men are books about the mission. This is true of Christian books, non-Christian books. This is the way God has built men. Books written by a woman for women, the relationship is the plot. The relationship is the plot. And the plot goes something like this. They like each other, then they don't like each other for a while because something happens, um, and then they like each other again. That's the plot. So... Women think relationally. The woman's orientation is she's facing the man. The man's orientation is facing the garden or the battle or the task. Right? Now this is not, when, when women think the way they do, they're not being perverse. This is how God created them. And when men think the way they do, they're not being perverse. This is how God created them. And he created them to harmonize. And 1 Corinthians 11 tells us how they harmonize. The man who has got a mission to perform, a man who's got something to do, he knows that if he runs into battle and his supply lines get extended, if he doesn't get the help he needs, he knows that he's going to lose out there. A man must 
tend to his wife. He must sacrifice for his wife. He must love his wife. He must realize what's going on. So he gives himself to her, but he, it's, there's nothing wrong with him going out into the world, wanting to make a dent in the world, wanting to accomplish something in the world, and there's nothing wrong with her having a focus that's entirely different from that. Right? And so consequently, when you have this egalitarian model that wants to put men and women out into the world together, both of them shoulder to shoulder as though they both have the same vocation in the world, or you want to turn men into panty wastes and bring them all home and have them facing their wives in the same way that the wives want to face them, what you've done is introduced severe dislocations into the, into the, the creation design that God has given us. So man is the gardener, called to tend the garden. The woman is the gardener of the gardener. All right? The woman tends the one who tends to other things. And they must submit to one another mutually. They must give to one another, because otherwise the whole thing breaks down. And this also is glory. Third, the Apostle Paul knew the sinful heart of men, and he knew that the first two things mentioned here, the fact that the woman is from the man, and the fact that the woman is for the man could easily be twisted by men into a vainglorious way of disparaging women. Paul knew how men function. He knew ma uh, the male temptations. And so he goes out of his way in the next two verses, in verses 11 and 12, to point out that men are not autonomous any more than the women are. It is true, he says, that the first woman came from the first man. That's true. He says not only is it true, but it's significant. It's significant for church polity. It's significant for the makeup of the elder boards. It affects who can preach. It affects all those things. The fact that the man was created first and the woman was derived from him, that is significant. But if that's significant, Paul goes on to argue, the fact that every man after Adam, every man in the history of the world since Adam came from the woman. Every man who has ever lived has been born of a woman. If it is important that the first woman came from the first man, it is also important, obviously, that every man since, from Cain on down, has been born of a woman. And to anchor the point for all time, to anchor the point everlastingly, our Lord Jesus was born of a woman. The first Adam was not born of a woman. The first Adam was fashioned out of the dust of the ground. The second Adam, the man from heaven, was born of a woman, Paul says in Galatians, born under the law. Born of a woman, born under the law. The second Adam was born of a woman. And if we are Christians, we are born of the second Adam. We are the bride of that second Adam. And the Lord Jesus was conceived in a virgin's womb and was born. That is significant. So if you want to declare your radical independence from women, you are trying to be, as many Christians have sought to be in so many ways, you're trying to be superior to Jesus. You're trying to be holier than Jesus. I don't need a woman. Yes, you do. You wouldn't be, your, your dependence on a woman is entirely ultimate. You can't say, I don't need a woman. You might say, I don't need a woman now. Even that would be crazy to say that I, I, don't, I, I don't have any dependency on, on women now, but at some point in your life, let's say back in 1950, when you were non-existent, you could not say, I have no need of woman. Because if you had not been conceived in a woman, you would not be here. And Paul argues vigorously, he impresses that on us, again, to show the, the, the nature of this Trinitarian interdependence. You have men exercising authority, but they do so in the way that Jesus did. That is, they exercise authority with a servant's heart. Men are to exercise authority submissively with a servant's heart. Women are to respect and honor submissively. And the more a man gives to a woman, the more he bestows on her, the better it is for him. The man who loves his wife loves himself, it says in Ephesians 5. And the woman who renders to him in this Trinitarian setting, and only there, when she gives, the more she gives, the more she has. The more he gives, the more he has. The more they give to one another, knowing what they're doing, the more blessed they are. And so a woman's derivation is her glory. Her task, her appointed task, is her glory. Her fertility is her glory. Notice that the modern egalitarian world is at war with all three of these. The modern egalitarian world is at war 
with a woman with, uh, through the doctrine of evolution is at war with the account that God has given us of the origin of man and the origin of woman. Evolution is at war with the first. Her task is her glory. Feminism is at war with the second. Her fertility is her glory. The hatred that our culture, our modern culture has of children, infants, fertility, larger families, the abortion culture, the hatred that is displayed toward fertility, toward, to use the biblical name for this, the hatred and, and uh, insults that are leveled at uh, fruitfulness are a third indication of how our culture hates women. Our culture hates the glory of women. Our culture hates the beauty of women. They hate the honor of women. And what they want to do by, and, and there's a trick here, there's, men need to stand up and see the serpent in this. They need, to, they need to recognize that when someone says, hey, what I want you to do is I want you to come into the corporate world and I want you to do this, this, and this, and this, and we're going to insist that you're going to be able to do everything just like a man. We're going to try to change um, first-rate women into third-rate men. When they say that, what are they doing except setting you up to be ridiculed? What are they doing? If someone were to say, we're going to pass a law, we're gonna, uh, Congress is going to step in and pass a law that uh, 50% uh, next year, 50% of the NBA has to, has to be women. 50% of the NBA has to be women. What are they doing? Are they honoring women in this? No, they're setting women up to compete with men on men's terms and therefore to make them an object of ridicule. Someone to insult. Feminism hates women. Unitarianism hates women. Doesn't want the glory of the woman to shine forth. And all too often, conservative, uh, conservative um, ostensibly conservative, Bible-believing Christians accept the caricature, adopt it as their own, and try to set up this, this power line uh, where the, the man commands and the woman obeys and, the, and he just has her under his thumb. And they, they say, this is, we, we need to keep, uh, anything that we do that's not feminism has to be biblical. But no, it's got to be biblical to be biblical. And the threshold of being biblical is not simply not feminism. So what we have to realize is that we live in a time when the modern world hates the glory of the woman. They hate the glory of the woman. And we need to honor the glory of the woman. Remember always that distinction and mutual indwelling, making a difference between one and the other, and having each one that's very different from the other indwell the one that they are not like. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and, and they are all distinct from one another, and yet the Father and the Son and the Spirit all indwell one another in the same way the man is not the woman, and the woman is not the man, and the parents are not the children. And yet, in all, in, in deeply mysterious ways, they indwell one another. They give to one another. These are Trinitarian realities. Distinction and mutual indwelling are Trinitarian realities. Independence and autonomy are Trinitarian heresies. Independence, egalitarianism, um, autonomy are Trinitarian heresies. Denying origins and refusing assigned tasks are Trinitarian heresies as well. Receiving what God gave the way God gave it is godly gratitude to the triune God who made us all. You don't need anyone to tell you that in our community here, in our town, over the last two or three years, we've been in a whole host of controversies that have uh, some, uh, there's a common theme in all of them, but one of the things that is constantly, regularly thrown at us, and it's very interesting to watch the juxtaposition of two things. One of the things that's thrown at us is because we believe the Bible and because we believe that men are the head of the wife and the husband is the head of the wife and the wife is to respect and honor her husband because we believe that and we teach it and we've got books, you know, you can quote things both in context and out of context from credenda or from marriage books or whatever to, that say that. Because of that, our egalitarian opponents charge us, accuse us, attack us for having contempt for our women oppressing our women. We browbeat our women. Our women are under our thumb because we are conservative troglodytes who have contempt for women. Otherwise, if we didn't have contempt for women, we wouldn't be saying the things we're saying. We wouldn't be printing the things we're printing. We wouldn't be in controversy with them, the egalitarians. 
But something else that's interesting, and we've seen more than one instance of this, that comes up regularly. When our opponents are saying these sorts of things from a distance, they say them, and they say them oftentimes without embarrassment. But when they meet women in our church and talk with them and, and, and interact with them, they are routinely and regularly bowled over. And the charge to you is this. Live in such a way. Treat your wives in such a way. Love your wives in such a way. Give your daughters security in such a way. Honor your mother in such a way that the average routine run-of-the-mill pagan out there, if they lived next door to you and they heard one of the intoleristas say, the problem with Christchurch, Christ the problem with people over at Trinity Reformed, the problem with those people is they browbeat their women. You should have the run-of-the-mill pagan who lives next door to you say, are you kidding? I would give anything to have a husband who treated me the way that man treats his wife. I would give anything to be oppressed like that. It's altogether lovely, but it's only lovely in a Trinitarian setting. The Trinity is not the new buzzword. We're not just saying this over and over again because we want to have a denominational distinctive. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct. They're not the same persons, and yet they love each other, they give to each other, they indwell one another, and the end result is glory, glory, and glory. And God has given us the privilege of living in communities and families and households, extended households. If you're not married, the same, the same, all the same principles apply to you, whether you're married or unmarried, because God does not limit it to simply the nuclear family. This is to be pervasive throughout all Christian society. And this mutual indwelling, this giving, this submitting, this uh, taking responsibility, which is the opportunity to sacrifice, all of this is godlike. All of this is Christ-like. And all of it is glorious. It's glory upon glory, glory instead of glory, glory that ascends as it descends. And so we thank our God together. Our Father, we would see and understand your glory but we know that apart from the glory of your grace, we can do no such thing. Our frame would collapse under your glory, and so we ask you now to strengthen our frame. We pray particularly that you would strengthen us so that we might stoop in humility toward one another, just as you've shown us how in Christ. We pray that your Holy Spirit would accomplish this. You know that you're living in a pietistic, pharisaical, Unitarian universe when love one another sounds to you like be polite or be a nice person. Love is glorious. Love is a dance. Love is rich. Love is infinite. And we are called to love one another because God is that love. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.